0: Shalom, welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the Original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those, through this program. We're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program We were also going to share some exciting opportunities, and please feel free to share this program with others who you know will also find it of interest. So this week is the first anniversary, not a celebratory anniversary, but an important milestone of the beginning of the war in Ukraine a year ago. In looking at it as an Israeli and being involved to a degree as well as a political junkie and wondering about the impact and the implications, I wanted to have a conversation about the anniversary and what it means, but from an Israeli and a Jewish perspective. And that's particularly relevant because at the beginning of the war, I didn't think that it was a particularly Jewish issue. But we're going to discuss it today with some very important guests who I'll introduce in just a moment. When the war started, I resisted jumping into the fundraising for another campaign to support people impacted by the war in Ukraine. Then, when I saw so many other people raising money for things that really didn't seem to be 100% kosher, or maybe they had good intentions, but they didn't really have the standing to do anything impactful, whether it was in Ukraine or, or outside of Ukraine, here in Israel or elsewhere, We jumped in and created a fund very quickly because my feeling was every dollar that we could raise that I could guarantee was going to provide some meaningful service was a dollar that wasn't going to be used somewhere else. And I'm pleased that we've done that, and I should have checked before we began the conversation today exactly how much money we have raised, Um, but I'm pleased that the two guests I have today have both been involved with using and dispersing those funds. We've had the privilege of providing uh funds for a variety of programs he, uh, for people here in Israel, in Poland, and in Ukraine. And and many of those have been through today's uh today's guests, who are two of the people who I know and I trust and know that we are doing good things with the money that's been donated. And I do I will make a mention of this if I remember later, but if anyone wants to continue to donate to support what uh, our guests are doing um we have a fund and you can go to ukraine.genesis123.co our first guest is leah haroni leah was born in the former soviet union well born in the soviet union now it's former soviet union um mo- immigrated to the us and then immigrated to israel i want to talk about that in a little bit leah because i think you know i have a background with uh with helping people like you Once get out of the Soviet Union. Um, Leah is the founder and CEO of Our People, an organization here in Israel that's assisting in the practical communal and spiritual absorption of Jews from Russia and Ukraine. Jonathan Ornstein is the executive uh, CEO of the JCC, Jewish Community Center, in Krakow, Poland. Jonathan is a native of New York. He moved to Israel in 1994, where he lived for seven years on a kibbutz, and then served in a combat unit in the IDF before moving to Poland in 2001. Jonathan taught modern Hebrew at Krakow's, uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it, Jagalonian University. Yeah, that's the Polish Jew in me. I got it okay. (laughs) Uh, The Department of Jewish Studies for six years and founded the Gesher Association for Polish-Israeli Dialogue. That's actually something that's been real important in recent years. Since its opening in uh, in 2008 by King Charles, who was then Prince Charles, Jonathan has served as the CEO of the Jewish Community Center in Krakow, an organization that's devoted to rebuilding the Jewish life in Krakow. Today, the JCC boasts over 850 members and welcomes 10,000 visitors a month, and is one of Poland's most visible signs of Jewish revival. He's created some really spectacular international programs relating to, uh, relating to um, the revival of Jewish life in Krakow and, and in specific and Poland in general. And he's a founding member of the Krakow Association of Christians and Jews, for, of which he serves as vice president. Jonathan has other memberships and activities that he's involved with. But he, a, as a primary architect of one of, uh, of the rebirth, if you will, of the Jewish life in Poland, following the decimation of the Jewish community there, um, it's really a pleasure to have you here with us as well, but also leading into this conversation. Now, before we do, I always like to start off with something a little bit personal. Leah, you're in Israel. Jonathan, you lived here for, for a number of years and served in the IDF. Um, what brought you here? What What was your motivating fact? You are both made Aliyah from uh, the U.S. Why would you come? Uh, Leah, do you want to start?
1: So it's funny because when I grew up in the Soviet Union, my grandfather went to France to visit some relatives in 1985. And one item that he snuck back into Russia, which would really let him in prison, it was a huge risk, was this uh, napkin holder with pictures of, of the Kotel inside. And my parents in another incredible act of heroism put that napkin holder on the dining room table, despite all the people walking through our house. So as a little child sitting, you know, by that napkin holder and looking at pictures of the coat, all there was this feeling for me that this is home. And when we left the Soviet Union, and we had to go through Austria and then Italy, and my parents were very sad on going to the U.S., But when we got off the plane in Austria, I was 12. My mother looked at me and said, the giant is going to come and ask us where we're going. You shut up because we're going to America. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, I was 12. I didn't have much choice. I went to America. But it was very clear to me that Israel is home. So two weeks after graduating from high school, I got my one-way ticket to Israel and have been here ever since. And where
0: where were you born and where did you grow up in in, uh, sort of the Union? In Moscow. In Moscow. Okay, very good. Um, Jonathan, how about you? You came here, you you worked on a kibbutz, you served in the combat unit. What motivated you coming to Israel?
2: It, it, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here and, and to with both of you. Thank you for having me. I was uh, essentially beginning law school in the United States, realized it might not be for me, wasn't too enthusiastic, so I deferred for a year. And met somebody who, when I was back in New York, uh, figuring out what I would do for the year, I met somebody who was uh, on a kibbutz in Israel. It sounded sounded more interesting than New York. So I went to Israel and fell in love with the country and with the kibbutz. And once I was there for the year, I decided to make Aliyah and and, uh, never went back uh, to the U.S., and uh, living in Israel and becoming a citizen, I felt that serving in the army was the responsibility of, uh, you know, being an Israeli. So although I was 28 when I did it, I went to the went to the army for for a couple of years. And, uh, yeah, was a lone soldier living on a kibbutz near near Eilat in the desert.
0: Oh, it's amazing. You just said lone soldier.
2: the uh, le- Episode we aired last week
0: is about lone soldiers. So if people haven't listened to that, um, th- they can listen retroactively and understand some of the experiences that you had here then. Um, so terrific. So I want to jump into the topic now, um, Jonathan. I want to start with you. I was thinking about it because I think, although Leah, you'll tell me when when it's your turn if I'm wrong. I think that probably the immediate impact was felt in, in in Poland where you are. Um, when 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 the war started, I wrote an article noting that what i consider kind of historical I- irony we had a, a, a very very large vibrant jewish community in poland before uh, before the second world war and the holocaust um and as the nazis invaded jews would would flee whenever they could and go to any neighboring country uh ukraine being one of them and a year ago we had russia invade ukraine and ukrainians fleeing every any country to which they could go including uh Poland and among the other uh social services being provided you at the JCC and a revived Jewish community in Krakow really stepped up i just think there's a tremendous irony in there um before we discuss any of the details about what you've been doing i love your your thoughts sitting in Poland for 20 years on a sort of the historical context of that what's significant about it to you
2: yeah i think that the the context is is incredibly significant here as you mentioned Poland was the center of Jewish life 300 years ago, 75% of world Jewry was living in Poland, maybe slightly wow. borders, but Poland, greater Poland. Um, and then that was almost completely decimated. And somehow the spark wasn't completely extinguished and we've managed to You know, to fan the flames and and to rebuild Jewish life to some degree, of course, nothing like it was uh, before the war, but still going in the right direction, let's say in a place that's, uh, that we don't suffer from a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism, we working Jews and non-Jews working together to rebuild Jewish life, Um, and and then the war, uh, the war came, and uh, we are very mindful of the fact that uh, why are we rebuilding Jewish life? Why does Jewish life need to be rebuilt? Because um, because of the almost complete destruction of Polish Jewry, but that destruction was so thorough because of the indifference of others. And now, 80 years later, when our community is doing well and people finding out they're Jewish uh, who grew up without knowing it, um and our our community on, on the right track i would say it's this idea of indifference that our community suffered so much because of indifference when jews were the other really was was very much in our heads when we decided to 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 react the way that we did is that 80 years later we have an opportunity to either learn from our history or to behave the same way that others behaved and our choice was to was to move forward and to learn and because because we weren't helped we wanted to help others.
0: Amazing! Thank you for sharing that, Leah. You coming from the uh, your first twelve years at least in the in the Soviet Union. Um, Jews were Jonathan just mentioned today that in Poland there's not a, a huge amount of anti-Semitism, um, but in the Soviet Union, and I know this firsthand having been there twice, trying to get people like you out. Um, Jews were persecuted widely, and Ukraine was never really great to the Jews. It was Jewish life that thrived. Um how do you look at what's happening? The 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 core of the Soviet Union Russia today uh invading a year ago another former Soviet country. Um the Jews are of course in the crosshairs, but it's not a particularly Jewish issue. What what's your historic perspective on all of this?
1: So very interesting. Actually, my family ended up in Russia exactly because of this. My family is originally from Poland. And uh in the beginning of the war, they crossed actually in World War One, part of the family crossed over in World War One and the other part of the family in World War II. But this is exactly how my family ended up in Russia because there are no original Russian Jews because Russia itself was actually uh off of the charts for Jews until 1917. Right. So um it's actually quite fantastic for us to be looking and seeing Russia attacking Ukraine because people like me grew up in Russia but would go to Ukraine. It was part of the same country I spent every single summer of my childhood in Ukraine. Um, And about a week before the war, there was actually a hearing in the Knesset about potential implications of such a war. And I was invited to that hearing, and uh, it was led by a member of Mrs. Isaac Pindros, who wanted to hear from the different government agencies in, in Israel, how are they getting ready for this war? When everybody in Kiev was sitting and drinking coffee in their coffee shops, and people were not believing that this is going to happen, and I've been taking groups to Ukraine for the past five years, I've been going to Ukraine about three to four times a year. I know the communities, I know the country, I know the people. I hear the sentiment back in Israel that Ukraine was never really great for Jews, and Ukrainian soil is watered with Jewish blood. You know, we 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 know that we've heard that all, and it's obviously true. Um, but a week before the war, I knew it's going to happen. And, um, because I could just feel it. And a week before the war, you know, looking back at previous history, it was clear to me that there going to be millions of refugees from Ukraine going to, you know, Poland and in Germany, and there would be a wave of immigration to Israel. And, um, it's something that's quite unbelievable for, in, for, you know, for a country to attack itself because Russian, Ukraine and Ukrainian people are really very close and always have been. But it is what it is looking in the, you know, in the current, uh, geopolitical um, constellation and it's probably going to get worse well, I, wanna, probably, I, wanna, I think this is probably just a promo of what's going to come
0: um, that's that's disappointing but we'll get to we'll get to that when we when we maybe begin to wrap up um Jonathan Leah was talking about being in the Knesset a week before the war started and and having a sense that something was imminent were you, was that were you feeling the same thing or did you wait until people were coming across the border to have that epiphany we need to do something
2: we, we in poland generally didn't think that the it was going to happen we of course there were troops massed at the borders but we thought it was saber rattling by putin just to you know to to get get some you know some get what he wanted uh from from you know certain aspects from from ukraine we absolutely did not think that he was there was going to be a full-scale uh, invasion uh launched against uh, ukraine we were caught off guard uh maybe israel you know in israel i guess feel, war always feels a little closer in israel than it does here in poland as we're in nato and polish history at least recent polish history is a little little less uh, less war it than israel has but yeah we were very surprised by 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 what happened you know we didn't didn't think it was going there would be an invasion so the war started february
0: 24th when did you uh, uh, begin to jump in and realize
2: that as you said you can't be indifferent and and there's an obligation to do something We started to jump in on February 24th. We Uh met, I think, a Thursday, and it happened over in like four or five in the morning, came into work, sat down with with my leadership team here, and we decided, um, first thing we did was we put a big banner, a blue and yellow banner saying, welcome in Ukrainian over our fence. We didn't know what it meant. We knew there would be refugees to some degree. We wanted them. It didn't even mean welcome to our building. It just, I wanted them to feel welcome in Krakow. Uh, the second decision was that we decided that w- once we started to understand the scope of the attack and, and that there was going to be a massive refugee situation, we decided that we were going to do all we could for Ukraine, not, you know, oh, let's do a little bit. Let's We're going to spend whatever we needed to spend and uh, mobilize uh, our community as, as however possible and do all we could for Ukraine. And the third decision was that we were going to help Jews and non-Jews equally. Um, So not set up a system to help Jews. And then if the occasional non-Jew walked in, help them as well. But we were going to fully need blind, help everybody we could. Uh, Again, with that, you know, as I said earlier, with the idea that 80 years ago, Jews were the other and the world wasn't too, too, too bothered about what happened to us. And if we want to not see that that if we want to be critical of that response of the world, then we have to do something different when when it's up to us to respond. And that's been that's been those three things, you know, that that sign on the fence saying welcome and 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 helping all we can and helping everybody has, has continued from day one and hasn't let hasn't stopped at all.
0: What were the urgent? Prior- I, mean, I, I don't know what you thought maybe on day one the needs would be, but what did it come out? What were you what you find yourself doing the most of?
2: yeah people came in and needed food they needed diapers they needed a warm coat people left with nothing uh you know with a backpack or just you know ran away from their homes so in our the main sort of entry the room the first uh, room that you walk into our JCC quickly became a free a free shop like a food pantry people started to bring supplies to us we started to see what people needed if we didn't have it we'd go out and buy it people started to give us money uh and and that that was the first that was the first thing and that that became, as I look now, I'm looking out my window, and there are, you know, 40 people lined outside the building, uh, as they were this morning before the gate even opened. We're, we're now that food, that small food pantry has become a full-scale operation. It's 500 people a day that we're feeding in our building. That's seven days a week. That's Shabbat. That's Yom Kippur. That's without any, without any stop. And that was the first, the first of of probably 20 programs that we're running to help Ukraine.
0: That was the beginning. I want to come back and follow up with you in in a moment, but uh, let's just take a quick break and then and then come right back. Do you have children or know somebody who does? If the answer is yes, you need to hear this. This year in celebration of Israel's 75th anniversary, the Genesis 123 Foundation has launched an incredible art contest for your children and Christian children all around the world. The contest, what Israel means to me gives your children the opportunity to show why Israel is special to them through art. They can draw, paint, color, or illustrate this in any way they want. The contest will be judged according to different age groups, with real prizes awarded to the winners. Please visit whatisraelmeans to mecom for details, contest rules, and how to register your child. Deadline for submission of all entries is in April, and the announcement of winners will be at a live event. On May fourteenth, please don't delay in registering your child, and please share this with others who will also want their children to participate. Visit whatisraelmeanstome.com dot com and join us today. Okay, so Jonathan, you talk about the food. Do you have a year later? Do you have a sense of what what food, diapers, blank, the the quantity of supplies that you've
2: provided to people coming five hundred a day? Um. Yeah, that's been about uh, oh, about 300 tons of food we've distributed. It's uh, the number is probably 160,000 Ukrainians have received food. Um, the number that we're helping is just that we've helped all together directly is is pushing 200,000, including all the different services that we've been able to provide in Krakow on the border, and then also sending supplies into Ukraine. Although when you send supplies into Ukraine, it's hard to know how many people really benefit. So, you know, on the border directly and inside Krakow, that number is about 200,000 people that we've directly helped.
0: And and I want to jump to Leia but before I do, That that's a that's a lot of people uh, and for a small Jewish community um, that's a that's a a lot that's a lot of resources a well I, I guess the question is I know Poland's been very receptive to to U- Ukrainians coming in and providing help and and the now that the war has started and is a year old there's a, a sense of well we could be in the crosshairs as well despite being a NATO member not to say it in an immodest way but what from an 850 member community it seems like you're taking on a much bigger proportion of providing aid than all the rest of Poland um not is that the case are there other big things that are happening
2: i mean the polish people have been remarkable Uh, And against the backdrop of previous refugee crises where the Polish government has been, you know, hasn't responded well, but the polls have been, uh, you know, shockingly uh, open hearted uh, and generous, Uh, we've had 7 million refugees pass through Poland, a country of 38 million, and there are probably about 3 million in the country now. Uh, So so it's not as if we're doing this in a vacuum, this is the general response in Poland has been to take care of Ukrainians. And I want to thank you and your organization and your listeners for for the support that you've provided and help us help make this possible.
0: Well we're we're grateful to to do it and for you serving as our partner there doing it. And I'm glad you mentioned earlier that it was important as one of your priorities to to um help Jews and non-Jews equally because that was one of our priorities. That was one of the things that we established. I honestly I was in the States shortly after that. And I saw all these infomercials on TV for different organizations raising money just to support Jews. And I felt that was really inappropriate for 200,000 Jews out of a country of 44 million, that it wasn't a Jewish issue. Uh, Leah, we're going to come to you because it gets more Jewish when it, when, when it comes to people coming to Israel. But I felt that we had an obligation to also to provide. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, Leah, so you're already a week earlier in the Knesset realizing that a war is imminent. And and having a unique, not just an Israeli perspective, but also a a childhood Russia, you look at things somewhat different. Um, When what did you think that that meant most the war happening for Jews? You mentioned uh, people making Aliyah and other other refugees. And what surprised you in the last year?
1: So the few issues, um, we actually had a mission. We brought a mission of American, um, influencers to the Knesset the day before the war, 23rd of February. we were in the Knesset the whole day. We had a meeting with Bennett, with was prime minister at the time. and the 24th, we have this whole campaign plan and a whole PR campaign plan. And I'm saying the, you know, our PR campaign was probably the first casualty of this war for us. But, uh, literally that day, because I've been to Ukraine many times and I've had many relationships, I got on my phone and started, you know, WhatsApping Jitomer and Kishinev and Kiev and and Uman and 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 you know and whatnot. What do you guys need? And you know, they needed money, they needed assistance. And one of the things I I feel very proud in, in being involved in it is getting the children of Jitomer out of the country and actually getting them across the border into Romania, working with Israeli uh, government to do that and to bring them to Israel within two weeks. That was a, a big feat that we worked on. How but- many children? It's a few dozen kids. Okay. Uh, they needed to get out of the country. They didn't have paperwork, so getting them out of Ukraine into Romania, then into Israel, was a big program. Uh, I think uh, two days into the war, I was in uh, um, Ben Gurion Airport, sending I think six or seven ton of food to Kishinev, wow. because they had hundreds of refugees that didn't know what to feed with. And and what happened was that you know as I was in touch with different communities, what I was quickly realizing is that there's going to be a Systemic issue. They're going to be refugees in Krakow and in Warsaw and in Kishinev and in uh, Serbia and in Romania and Bucharest. And they all needed food and they only needed kosher food because, you know, it was mostly based in Jewish communities and they were not going to feed them non uh, And non kosher food, food. So so we needed to get, and it was, you know, Passover was just around the corner. So what we did with a group of people was to set up a system to supply uh, refugee centers with food inside Ukraine and in Europe. So the first you know, order of business was really to deal with the food and to create food, uh, food supplies, and this is what we did. And then with Passover around the corner, You know, usually Ukraine feeds itself and Russia with Passover food, and they had no Passover food of their own, and we needed to find that. Now, that's something that's usually taken care of in November. Here we were in March. So we organized about $5 million worth of kosher food um, for Passover sending to Ukraine for the Jews, because I fully appreciate what you're saying, Jonathan and Jonathan, about uh, doing for others what was not done for the Jewish people, you know, 80 years ago. But we also have uh, a concept in Judaism that kindness starts at home. You have to take care of, you know, it's great to take care of everybody, but you also have to make sure that your family is taken care of, too. And if we didn't take care of, you know, of the Jewish communities, nobody else would. So that was really our priority. So the first couple of months of the war, really, our priority was uh, feeding the refugee um, organizations and the the organizations taking care of refugees and and getting them uh, whatever supplies we could on a really on or more of like a... Whole, a whole, um, wholesale scale, you know, not just, you know, this refugee here, refugee there, but really making sure that there is a, a supply chain. And it was very challenging in a war situation. And as that, you know, started happening, the people started coming to Israel, actually traveled to Ukraine, um, not to Ukraine, didn't get to Ukraine, but was in Moldova and in, and in Romania, you know, in March to see the situation, to see firsthand, to talk to the people who were destined to come to Israel to see what's the, you know what shape they're in what would they need, what are the things they would need. And then as they started coming to Israel about a week into the war, so it's going to the hotels where people were put up and seeing what they need, you know, and getting them food and getting they had food, but getting them clothing and getting the supplies. Yeah, right.
0: Same way. They left yeah. They left in the winter or or and they had that what they were wearing.
1: Literally, I know about a week into the war, the first family that came to Jerusalem, I went to meet them and they said, you know, 12, you know, at midnight, they decided they're getting on the bus at 6 a.m. They were on the bus with their kids, with whatever they could take. It was literally like Exodus, literally like Exodus from Egypt. And um, and so it was helping these people and then setting up a system in Israel to to assist them because the Israeli system was just overran. The government sure. was, or it was way more than the Israelis could think. of. what nobody thought of at the time was that Russians, not Ukrainians, but Russians were starting migrating. But there were actually have been uh, about four, t- f- about four times as many people immigrated from Russia as that is from Ukraine.
0: Right. Well, I want to <laughs> come. I want to come back to that in terms of the numbers and quantities. Um, but I want to just use this as a trigger because you talked about Passover, Jonathan. You didn't, but uh, and Leah, you and I were in touch a year ago when when this was happening. Um, I was in, I was trying to find, and I have some connections with some major Christian organizations that have airplanes. And I was trying to get them to use their planes to fly in food. And I'll just plant this seed and and we can follow up on an individual basis. Then it wasn't possible. Maybe now there's a little bit more lead time and the needs are still existing. We're going to the second year of of Passover in Ukraine under uh, under a war. And uh, I'll be glad to have a conversation with the both of you to see whether it's flying into a plane into Kiev or to Krakow or wherever it may be, um, if if any of these ministries will bring a plane load of supplies, um, that that would be an amazing thing. Leah, I want to uh, I want to um, pivot a little bit, but before I do, the re- the estimate before the war was that there were about two hundred thousand Jews in Ukraine. A no, that estimate is not right. What so? What's the number? And what what was it? And what is it?
1: Okay, so the forty-three thousand Jews in Ukraine. There are now the hundred and fifty thousand people who are forty three four hundred and
0: thirty.
1: Forty-three. Forty three thousand Jews in Ukraine. That's it. Okay. Yeah, and about hundred and fifty thousand uh, people who are eligible to make Aliyah under the law of return. Okay. So this is this is a confusion. And in Russia, there are about 150,000 Jews and about 450,000 people who are eligible to okay. make to make Kaliyanda the law of return. That's the that's the reason. Um we estimate that about so about uh, there are about 60,000 people that came from both countries to Israel in the past year and we think that there are about 5 to 10,000 Jews that came to Europe to the different places in Europe this is the estimate most um, most of russian and ukrainian Jews are still uh, you know back home but we estimate there'll be another 60,000 people who will come to Israel in the coming year looking at the rate of immigration right now in the past 4 months we're seeing about 5 to 7,000 people coming mainly from Russia every month so we think there'll be another 50 to 70,000 people who will come to Israel in the coming year.
0: All all is a direct result of the war, that they don't feel yes. safe in Russia anymore, not because there's a war in Russia, but because things have changed.
1: Uh, so there are a few factors. One is the draft. Ah. Nobody wants to be drafted and go to Ukraine. So after the draft, the um, immigration doubled. Uh, but yeah, Russia stopped being safe. It stopped being safe for everybody. It also stopped being safe for Jews. Sure. Jonathan
0: have you seen a growth of the of uh, I mean it's only only a year but are do we know that there are Jews from Ukraine who you feel are comfortably are going to stay in Krakow and have grown, increase the community
2: Absolutely so our community has grown by about 200 members uh Jews from Ukraine I, I should also say that the you know generally the Jewish world and most mainstream Jewish organizations don't don't see that number as 43000 um uh, that 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 number is considered at least 200,000 if you want to take a more strict orthodox view of things that's a little bit different but most mainstream the alphabet of north american jewish organizations would would not see that number as 43,000 well, it good, comes good. To
1: Australia's research you know it's not my numbers but I can send you the you know it's from uh Vermin Jewish Bank and that's that's the demographics
0: well we get we get more or less for well, 43 plus 150 is still uh comes comes off close to two hundred thousand so that maybe that's where the number comes from um I, I want to talk from a, a the Israel perspective um I, my sense has been um Disproportionately in the last year, Ukraine's been particularly critical of Israel, especially for not providing arms um, to fight the Russians. And that that oh, that overlaying all of the unique conflict of interest that we have with Russia's influence in Iran and in Syria and our relations with the Russians, putting that aside... Um, from the very beginning, there were a number of Israel-based and Jewish organizations, JCC, uh, of course, Leah, what you're doing, and, and others, which were involved, which set up shop in Ukraine, uh, excuse me, in Poland on the border and across the border from Ukraine and other countries, and and worked to provide resources, Leah, as you were providing, talking about, in Ukraine from Israel, specifically for the Jewish community. Um some of its temporary relief and some of its ongoing what's what to each of you has been the most outstanding that Israel? i want to speak about it from an israel perspective what israel's done and do you think that the do you think that i'm wrong do you think that there's not been a particularly large amount of singling out of israel or or, or has that been justified leah you want to start
1: so first of all israel did not Provide military aid; it never does. Israel never sends military aid anywhere, and there are very specific reasons for that. Uh, but Israel has provided a huge amount of hum- humanitarian aid to Ukraine, not just to the Jewish community, but to Ukrainian community in general. Um, that's number one. And on the other hand, Ukraine has not been very, um, you know, neighborly and brotherly to Israel as well, especially in, in different UN votes where Ukraine voted against Israel on some key issues. Um, I think that it's going to be ch- there's been a change of the government, and I think the incoming government will be more, I would say, nimble and able in uh, handling the international scene more than the previous government was, which I think fell a little bit out of its depth. Um, I think what's happening right now is that Israel's and Ukrainian um, interests are aligning because both of them are being targeted by Iran. And um, I think going forward, there will be more cooperation. There probably is, and it's probably behind the scenes.
0: That's what I'm thinking. Yeah.
1: Yes, but being is that um, Ukraine is being bombed by drones that were originally designed to bomb Israel. I think they're going to be. There's going to be more aligning of interests, and it's all probably going to happen behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, Jonathan, what about you? Sitting in Krakow, what's your sense on on Ukraine's um, c- c- complaint that Israel hasn't been doing
2: enough? first time I went uh, to the border and crossed the border in March into Ukraine, uh, it was shocking that the, you know, at one of the border so- crossings, which is the main one here in the south of Poland, um, you of the all the tents set up in international organizations, I would say an, easily a third of them were Israeli. Um, so I think we have to You know, we say sometimes Israel and Israelis, uh, you know, we have to not only say Israel, we have to also say Israelis. So if Israeli NGOs uh, come to come and, and do massive operations to support Ukrainians on the border, inside Poland, inside Ukraine, then we have to also count that. While the Israeli government, it's a little more complicated, obviously, because of the. Military uh, security situation that Israel finds itself in with with with, with Russia having uh, the influence that it does over parties that can do Israel harm, uh, then I, I we should all be incredibly proud of the response of Israeli NGOs that were leading the way. If you if if you didn't know anything about the size of any countries and you just came to that border, uh, you would have thought that the you know one third of the world was Israeli. So wow. massive response.
1: <laughs> I agree with Jonathan. I saw the same thing happening in Israel. Israelis in the first couple, two, three months of the war really rallied here to send assistance in every way possible. And every single uh, Israeli and Joe, it felt like, was involved in helping Ukraine one way or the other. So, um, yes, that response has been really overwhelming, while the military response was different.
0: Yeah, okay, great. Thank you for for, for that from both of you. Um, let's take another quick break and then come come back and talk about what, what, what's coming? Um, we'll, we'll ask you to put your prophet hats on. If you're like most people in the world, you know about the Holocaust, but never met, much less interacted with a Holocaust survivor or heard their stories of suffering and survival. With the remaining elderly survivors dying at an unprecedented pace in less than a generation, there will be none alive. Yet while they did survive, and for that we need to celebrate them, many still suffer trauma from their youth. As they age, they have increasing needs. And living on fixed incomes, sometimes with no pension, things as simple and essential as basic foods, heating in the winter, medicine, and inflation can push someone over the line from surviving to struggling again. It can create stress in their lives that reminds them of the suffering they endured as young people. It's just not acceptable that anyone who suffered as much should struggle with basic needs or any undue stress in their twilight years. I want to invite you to join the Genesis 123 foundation to bless the survivors. Yes, we pray that you'll donate personally and do so generously. And when you do, we also give you the opportunity to send your personal blessings and words of encouragement to the survivors themselves to brighten their day and let them feel your love. Having been privileged to provide financial resources to help survivors on a day-to-day basis, I know it makes a difference and is very appreciated, but your personal note that we translate into Hebrew, Russian, or Yiddish really makes them smile and warms their heart. I pray you'll join us by going to genesis123.co slash survivor. That's genesis123.co slash hug a survivor, and please share this with others. We can't undo the suffering that they endured, and there's no limit to what the needs are, but we can never do too much to comfort them in their final years. Please join us. God bless you. Okay, um, Leah, Jonathan, um, before we talk about what what's coming up and what, what you foresee, and what your needs are and, and and where this is going to go a year uh, months hence the year a year from now what are the biggest challenges that you've come up with um in terms of what you're doing personally to help refugees or in in lay your case here immigrants um Jonathan, go ahead
2: for us uh, you know people very strongly associate i travel you know half my time is spent in the us speaking and and fundraising and people associate uh, the need with the with crossing the border. So people say, oh, people aren't crossing the border from Ukraine. Uh, things are quieted down for you. And we say, no, actually, there are three million Ukrainian refugees in our country, and in our city of seven hundred thousand, there are one hundred seven hundred fifty thousand. There are a hundred thousand refugees. So. You know, I, I think that in the beginning, when it was the lead story on TV every night, it was much easier for people to understand the situation and to to you know to contribute resources. But it's become much much more difficult. You know, we're still feeding a th- feeding and housing and and giving social psychosocial services to a thousand people a day every day, and people don't realize that that's happening because the border has quieted down, and they assume. Wrongfully so that the Polish government has the means to take care of the people that are inside the country. But that's that. Sadly, that's not the case. And what does it
0: cost you a month to feed and house a thousand people a day?
2: Uh, It's costing us about half a million dollars a month. We've spent so far, we've spent distributed about nine million dollars worth of aid. Have you had to cut back because of less resources? Yes, we're we're making absolutely incredibly difficult choices in terms of housing. Do we give this apartment to the you know to the uh, to the we have a couple some uh, a mother who's eighty with a, a hundred her woman who's eighty with her hundred and two year old mother, and do they get the apartment that we have, or do they, what about the, the you know the, the the guy who's blind versus the family with seven children? Very difficult decisions that we're we're having to make just because the resources are limited.
0: Yeah, Leia, what you 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 you've write, written about a lot on social media a lot about the I, I will say failures of the Israeli government not providing enough, not doing enough, not being as efficient. Um maybe that's endemic here, but what not not as a way to pile on the Israeli government, um but more what have been the challenges that you've come up against most here?
1: So we definitely have the same challenge that Jonathan's talking about. People ask me, what, Ukraine? There's still a war going on there? I really wouldn't know. And uh, people are not crossing the border from Ukraine, but people are there, literally you know, 350, 000, 350 people coming, flying into Israel from Russia and Ukraine every single day. And, and they come here, and usually they come on what's called the emergency aliyah. They come without uh, their aliyah visa. So they come as tourists, they get a SIM card from the government and and a ride, and then they have to wait two to three months before they actually get um, an appointment for the citizenship and before they get any assistance from the country. So um, there are thousands, tens of thousands of people here who have no assistance. And then even the ones who already get assistance, they get some money, they maybe get a little but they have tremendous challenges. Somebody who has not been through the process of immigration – literally cannot understand the stress. And somebody like me who's been through immigration as a child, I remember what it was like for my parents, you know, 35 years ago. It, it, and that was a planned immigration. Here people who didn't plan to come, right? They don't have they didn't plan to come. So there's a huge amount of stress. And um what a lot of organizations are doing i'm basically addressing it on case by case basis. But I'm seeing fatigue. I think people are tired. You know, there are a lot of needs there are When you say
0: people, you're not. Of course, the the, the Ukrainians are tired because they are undergoing. Oh, the Israelis are tired. That's what I'm saying. Right. People are tired of participating.
1: Uh, Look, Nevesh Benefesh, which is an organization that assists uh, American Jews in coming to Israel, is a $50 million organization that helps 5,000 people to make aliyah to Israel a year. There are 60,000 people who came from Ukraine and Russia, and there is no organization for Ukrainians and Russians in Israel. It just doesn't exist. So they're good volunteers. They're good people on the ground who are trying to help, but it's all case-by-case case basis, and it's fatiguing. And what I'm seeing is that people are falling off, you know, like we've had enough, we did not think It's enough. What we're working on right now is setting up a strategic plan to help people strategically. So for example, just one example I'll give you. Literally today, I got a call about from a woman who came from Ukraine. She's alone in the country with her daughter and she was diagnosed with cancer. Okay, what does she do? Like, how right. does she like what does she how does she make a living? There are organizations in Israel that help cancer patients. They're just not accessible to Russians and she doesn't even know that they exist. Yeah. Uh, what we're looking to do is to create a strategic plan to put the Israeli nonprofit sector serve Russians, just to make it accessible. And then, sure. then the, the you know, the answers are here. Well, i just I'll creating look forward, the bridge to the answers. I'll,
0: I'll look forward to seeing that. And Jonathan, of course, your needs, two of the people who we've helped provide funding for. When you're talking, Leah, about, um, the, the the situation that people come here on an emergency basis and are not yet citizens, so they're not entitled. And that's when you reached out to me, I don't know, 10 months ago or some 11 months, uh, nine months, 10 months ago, where there was a woman who who had come who needed an MRI and no one was paying for it. So I was so thrilled that we were able to give you money I I don't remember how we paid you. We paid the hospital directly. I think we paid the hospital. Yeah, it, was, it was amazing to be able to do that and know at least for one woman who was injured because of the war and now is here on a refugee status before getting citizenship that we were able to uh to step in. Um Leah, you had you had now, now's where you both get to play profit. You had said you think that this is gonna go on for a while. Um it's it's gonna get worse. Um first of all, is there an end in sight? What What is the end and what are the consequences? Um, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to have this conversation a year from now on the second anniversary?
1: So uh, I, I have one axioma, and that is that Russia cannot uh, afford to lose this war. So uh, it's very clear that so long as Putin is in power, he has he cannot afford to lose the war, so we'll have to win it you know, by any way possible. And if I have to look back to history to find an analogy, that would be the 1940 Finland War. In 1940, fin- uh, Russia attacked Finland, and uh, the Finns were much better equipped and much more strategic. And at first, they really, um, they really had excellent gains. And Russians uh, left 1 million dead bodies in Finland in order to win that war. And um, this is what Russians are going to do. This is Russian historical strategy. The historical strategy is that Russian women will give birth to more soldiers. So um, it's how they won World War II, and this is what they'll do here. So I think there's going to be another mobilization. And they will put all the resources of this country, of this war, and this war will get worse and okay. get
0: so uh, I'm gonna ask you and then Jonathan segue to you, but can there be from your perspective a way to let Putin walk away thinking that he's won without killing another a million people, like in Finland?
1: Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I he can unless there is a coup in, in Russia, which is a possibility, you know, but then Russia will go into into civil war. You know, I, I don't see any good outcomes here. Right now, I really don't see any good outcomes here. It's not like anybody w- and and Ukrainians are psyched to win this war. They cannot afford to uh, end this war without getting Donbass and without getting Crimea. They're really set of getting Crimea back. So it's going to get very bloody. And I think we're going to see, you know, I think about 120,000 uh, Russian soldiers that have died, you know, in that war in the past year, about, you know, 40,000 Ukrainian ones. It's gonna get much bloodier, I think, and I really, really hope it doesn't cross over into you know, Poland and and, and and Eastern Europe, which it can, but um it's not gonna be pretty. So
0: Jonathan, you you're you, I, I wanted to have your non-Israeli, non-Ukrainian perspective, uh oh, you're Israeli, but you're sitting there in Poland. We spoke about Poland being NATO. In the beginning no one thought you didn't think in Poland that that the war would happen because Putin was just um uh flexing his muscle and trying to get some kind of concession um what's your sense um what are we going to be talking
2: about in a year uh, uh you know depressingly i, I think Leah is is 100% right it's hard to see an out here because putin can't afford to lose the war and stay in power so either something happens that putin goes in some way but it's hard to bet against the guy who's been in power for 21 years and who is a KGB agent you think that he's if anyone's taken precautions not to have a coup it's it's you're starting with him he'd be number one not to be that you wouldn't be able to do that so it's very difficult i think the military you know the the paradox is the military success of ukraine has as is prolonging the war i mean of course it should and they shouldn't give up but you know that they have tasted enough success that they're not about to give up Donbass and give up give up crimea so maybe in the early days of the war, there could have been a uh, some kind of uh, ceasefire that would have returned the status quo, but Ukraine is not going to accept what was what would happen. You know, it, Ukraine is not going to accept the February twenty third lines, and uh, Putin can't stay in power with a loss. So it's very hard to see any kind of out without something giving, and I don't I don't know what that could be. I and, that no means,
0: and that means at least three million. Ukrainian refugees staying in Poland or more coming, more coming, if it gets worse, like Leia is saying, and Leia still, what do you say, 350 uh, people arriving on a daily basis. Um, another, uh, I, I can't do the math, but if I multiply that times 350 times 365, th- th- those are the numbers that we could potentially see um, in the next, if we're having this conversation. That's uh,
2: 100,000. Um, yeah. Yeah, Uh, it's hard to see. I mean, I think also there are things that the West can do that would put more pressure on Russia than we have done. They can completely cut them out of the banking system. We can absorb more pain in terms of fuel uh, prices. We can, you know, we we can instead of this sort of, oh, we're not going to let them sell oil past a certain price. We could completely boycott Russian oil. But there are people willing to buy it. You know, there are Iran, China, India. Kazakhstan, Turkey, you know the russia the world is uh, is redividing along lines that that uh, that we thought were were blurred into history. This yeah. is very difficult. You know a country that has has resources that the world needs, it's very hard to isolate them. You know it's easier to isolate North Korea. They're not they're not exporting massive amounts of oil.
0: Yeah, well well said. Um wrapping up, what what let's give you each an opportunity to close. What have we not spoken about today? That you, that you want people to know in terms of an Israeli Jewish response, in terms of what the needs are, um, wh- where this is going to go. Uh, Jonathan, you want to begin?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with Leah that it's, of course, up to us as Jews to take care of, make sure that Jews are taken care of. But I would hope, uh, especially considering the history and that there is tremendous Jewish capacity to help others around the world, that we would continue to help those arriving in Israel, uh, and help those who are in Poland, and help those that are in the United States, and we come together as a Jewish people and say: 80 years ago, there was a different uh, different dictator in this part of the world, and because of this idea that uh, we we need to worry about ourselves first and not worry about the other, we have the, that that six million number of Jewish victims of the Holocaust is so high, and and I would hope that we would, uh, you know, we we as Jews. Have a particularly difficult history, and I think we have that gives us a particular responsibility to learn from our own history. So yeah. all we can hope for with this depressing political analysis of mine and Leah's uh, that we have no we see no way of things getting any better, which just means there's more responsibility for the world to try, especially the Jewish world, to try to help Jews and non-Jews. Well said, thank you, Leah. How about you? What, 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 what needs to be said?
1: So just like Jonathan, I keep thinking back to eighty years ago, and you know, I try to get into the mindset of of somebody sitting in New York or, or Washington or, or Los Angeles eighty years ago, and what was their relationship to this war happening in Europe? And it was probably a non relationship. It was probably in something they didn't hear about, or something there was a blip on the news uh until you know until america went into war after pearl harbor and and then it came close to home so um i think if we and you know and today we'll look back and we say how could they not see what was happening how could they not relate to what was happening there was a tragedy happening how could be so far from them and today we'll look at the situation and we see the, the same replay for people who are not touched by this uh, two months after the start of the war it's a non-war it doesn't happen it's a blip yeah. on blip on the news so just like Jonathan I really hope there will be more caring I really hope that all of us and know people on both sides of the ocean for Jews and not for Jews, I really don't care I think we all need to show more caring and when we show more caring I think we can solve many of these problems and help the people who need the help
0: Beautiful. Well said. Well, and and on that note, I want to just remind people who would like to make a donation. uh, The website ours is ukraine.genesis123.co. And you've just heard from two of our partners and I've never had this conversation with either of you before. So it gives me all the more great pride to be able to receive money and pass it along to you. So let's, let's, hopefully people will, with your, um, gloom and doom uh, uh, analysis, but also stepping up as you both have, um, providing the the moral guidance, the the humanitarian support, and I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that I'm grateful now a year later that I to affirm that I picked two really good places and people through whom to entrust the money. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining Inspiration from Zion today.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: So as we wrap up for the last year, we've been doing something real fun. As a matter of fact, today I just sent off a book to somebody in Vietnam uh, it was really funny going to the Israeli post office and the guy asked me how to spell Vietnam in English. And there were three or four other people in the post office who no one knew how to spell Vietnam in English now, in, excuse me, in Hebrew. And now I do. So we had to get that book. And why do I say a book? For the last year, every month, we've been give, giving away a special volume. We call it From Jonathan's Bookshelf. And all we ask that you uh, do is follow and like the inspiration from Zion on social media. And when you like or comment, on the program, this program, we're going to pick one person to receive um, another book, another amazing book this month for your library that you're going to want to have. We're always grateful to our podcast sponsors. First, the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area, pop in and say thank you to them for helping make conversations like this possible. And also our special thanks to the Coyne family for their meaningful sponsorship. Just like the programs we've heard about today, Inspiration from Zion and all of the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So while we do raise money for other important things, please do consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges with your own donation. Um, If you'd like to sponsor or future episode and honor a memory of a loved one or special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We always love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue, and especially want you to send your questions relating to traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi program. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest, and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy, and send my blessings from right here in the Judean
2: Mountains. God bless you.